National Geographic Documentary Films presents The Mission, the gripping story of John Chow, the American missionary killed attempting first contact with the indigenous peoples of North Sentinel Island, hailed by Vanity Fair as one of the best documentaries of the year. A nuanced discussion of religion, pop culture, and colonialism, says IndieWire. The Mission, streaming December 8th on Disney Plus and Hulu. Hey, this is John Ridley, and welcome to Doc Talk. Um, I'm doing it solo this week uh, as I speak. Um, my partner, Matt Carey, is away at the International uh, Documentary Festival in Amsterdam, but we'll probably chat about that before you hear this episode, but I'm just being honest with you. In real time, I'm, I'm here, Matt's away, and he's doing hard work. Um, I want to get straight to it. I'm, I'm having a conversation today with, a, with the director of, of the film, King Cole. And as you probably know at this point, I, I love documentaries. That's why I'm doing this. I love documentaries that really challenge. But I also love documentaries that reach you in a way that are beyond facts, um, things that are undeniable. And, and that, to me, lands in the emotional space. And I don't know, and I mean this very sincerely, probably not since seeing Faye Adia, have I been moved so emotionally by a documentary, just in the visuals, in the emotion, in the construction, and something that really made me reconsider, um, or even consider, I think, biases that maybe I held and I didn't even know. Um, it's a phenomenal documentary, and I'm really honored to be joined by the director of King Cole, Elaine Sheldon. Elaine, thank you so much for for joining this this morning, and Congratulations. I mean, I say congratulations, but you put in the work. You know, it's not like you just won the Powerball. You went out and, and you made this incredible film. Thank um, you. Thank you for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me. It's an honor. Let's talk about the film. And, and there's a lot to talk about or a lot that I really want to talk about. I want to talk about the film. I want to talk about your background. And I want to talk about the aesthetic. And let's start with the film. This is a film. It's called The King Cole. And this is really about, if, if someone were to ask me what the film was about, I'd say, hey, this is about the, the, the coal industry and coal as life through the Appalachians. But it's about so much more than that. And you started with a place, I mean, this is something that's very close to you. You're from the Appalachians. Your family worked in the coal industry. And as I understand, in your early life, you had to move around quite a bit for your family to maintain its livelihood in the coal business. Is that all? Am I getting yeah. that semi-correct? Yeah, yeah. I And I still live here in the region. I live in Knoxville, Tennessee. But yeah, my family, um, we have four generations of miners in the family with my brother still working today in the coal industry. So for you, you know, this was around you and it was there. And, and, and the question becomes at some point, you know, what was the inspiration was the genesis for this. But was this something, you know, because you're so close to this, was it always there and it was about one day, hey, this is the story that I want to tell? Or was there something else that was like, look, I need to examine the coal industry or the life and the lifestyle in a way that other people maybe don't get? Yeah, I think it was a don't get feeling where as mm. I had done work for Frontline PBS and others about politics of coal, environment, you know, black lung, all the things that we hear the most about in terms of the destructiveness of coal, which is all very worthy storytelling. But 
what was being missed was sort of this belonging and identity that was fading. Mm-hmm. And I was watching that happen in, over, you know, the past decade or more within my own family of every time we get together for holidays, there's more conversation about layoffs and unemployment than there is and a loss of community than there is about any pride anymore. It felt like such a personal story that I think I wasn't ready to tell until now. And surrounding myself with people that allowed me to tell it on this team was really helpful. But it became a story that uh, not necessarily about facts and figures, because there's only 10,000 miners left in West Virginia, but became one about the psyche and the soul and having a conversation about what it means to reinvent ourselves and what it means to lose while this force has not been all good, um, recognizing the good and bad of what we've come from to rebuild ourselves from into something new. You talk about a couple of things in there. You talk about facts and figures. I want to talk about that. You talk about um, lifestyle and traditions. Um, but you also mentioned, you know, being now. You know, now, or obviously, you shot this film a, a, a minute ago, but there was a moment where you felt like, oh, okay, now I'm ready to tell this story. Was that an emotional now? Was that a um, functional now? Uh, just as a, as, a, as a filmmaker, as a storyteller, you were prepared to do it. I think it's both. I think it was personally, I felt brave enough. Um, You know, I narrate this film. I wrote this film. And so it's got a lot of personal stories that this is new for me. I mean, generally, my film falls within the cinema verite, more of a journalistic exploration. So I've never put myself out there in this way. And so I wasn't really ready for that until now. But also, I think Cole is in the conversation right now. We're asking questions about the future. And I feel like the people that are most affected by that in the coal fields um, should be part of that conversation. And so it felt like the right time to be sort of making people more aware um, that this isn't necessarily, you know, a pro-coal, anti-coal um, climate change film in the way that we generally see coal depicted, but it's one, it's a human story um, and to remind people of the humans behind it. Yeah, it's an, an incredibly human story. And, and you talk about being brave enough and ready enough to tell this story. It, I mean, if I, I saw a previous interview, and again, I just want to confirm, I'm not as rigorous a journalist as you are, but your, your grandfather is, is in this film. Is that correct? Yeah, that's my papa, the guy who yes. plays the fiddle. <laughs> so, it, which is remarkable, that shot, by the way, just of your grandpa playing the fiddle and doing this uh, immediate jump cut to this other environment. And we want to talk about that when we talk about the aesthetic. But that must have been, and you do tell a story when you screen this for the first time, screening it not just for a, an audience, which is always challenging enough, critics and an audience and, and going to festivals, but when your family sees it and you are talking about something that irrespective of how you may have approached it, we are in a politicized world and people do have their biases. As I mentioned, I came into this film with a bias that you absolutely shattered it must have been really anxiety-inducing to sit and show this film, not for strangers, but for the people that you care about, and knowing that you want people to have a different feeling, but that they may not understand. The people closest to you. Um, Chris McQuarrie, who is one of the great writers and a great guy, he said something about art. Um, He said once to me that art is really, it's hurting the people you love to impress people that you never meet. And, and in that, taking things that are very personal and, and putting them out there in a way that um, other people are going to judge it, but people who are personal are going to go, wait a minute, you're, that, that story is my story. So I, I, I imagine it was very anxiety-inducing to show this, not just for the world, but for people who, they're your family, and they are yeah. invested in, in coal emotionally and culturally, not just financially. Yeah, and I mean, one, one could argue that 
you know, someone like myself, uh, how dare I speak in any negative way about this, given that I went to college on the fact that I had money, Mm -hmm. you know, a scholarship to go to college based on the coal industry. So yeah, I think that that, I didn't talk about this film with my family, except with my papa, who obviously is in it, um, because I just wanted to make sure I'd gotten it as right as possible before the film came out. And I really felt it was important. I didn't show it to anyone in my family um, alone in a silo. I showed it to them with a crowd because I wanted them to see how other people reacted because I know it's easy to watch this if you're close to it and find the parts that prick you um, and the find the parts that feel like... Um, you know, I don't think any of it feels like an attack, but I think that because this is such a, uh, it's such a cultural and ritualistic and kind of ritual religion here, that when you say anything, it's it's prickly. Um, and so my parents actually came to Sundance to see it, and that was the best mm. experience because my dad was able to really see how, you know, people that are unrelated to this region were their eyes were open to something that they weren't aware of before, whether that was the beauty of the region or the complexity of the sculpture. And my dad, I think, felt very, um, I don't know, comforted by that, that this wasn't a one-sided thing. And then for my grandpa, he just thought it was too loud. He just said, it's too loud, (laughs) Elaine. (laughs) The opposite of my my parents, who probably about your grandpa's age, where they like like it loud. Everything's got to be loud in the house. Um, you know, I want to talk about that for a second because you talk about um, worrying about that the film would offend um, or, you know, worrying that this, you know, look, obviously no, none of us can control what other people think or feel, but you, your concerns about it being negative about the coal industry, it, 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 it's almost the, the opposite. And I don't mean the opposite like it's pro-coal by any means. Uh, if anything, I thought it was masterful and that it took no sides and that it just seeped in a region, and and you mentioned two things, the beauty of the region and the tradition of coal. And that's where I think when I, and I'm I'm being so very honest, and for people who don't know me, I'm I'm an old black man. And so I'll be very honest that while I I think I'm progressive and I think I'm open-minded and I, I, I like to think that, the reality is all of us have our biases. And I remember a few years back, uh, prior to the pandemic, when Hillbilly Elegy, uh, I think that's, that's what it's called, it came out, and somebody was talking about it, my instant reaction was, I don't want to hear about these grievances, I don't want to hear about this part of the country. They actually gave me the book, I read a few pages, I'm like, I don't, don't even, I ain't going there. From the moment, and I mean this, your, your, your film Unspooled, I realized I, I had no conception of Appalachia. You know, beyond, and I mean this almost literally, Beverly Hillbillies. You know, I, I had no concept, you know, seeing people of color. I, it's not that, you know, people of color, I, I know we live everywhere. I grew up in a small town in the Midwest. People are still freaked out when they look at my driver's license, or they did. Uh, oh, you're black and you're from Wisconsin? I didn't know they had black people. They're not trying to be mean. They would say that. So here I am faced with all the biases that I get hit with constantly from other people and realize that I have them. They're people of color. They are part of this environment. Young people don't really know what coal is about in this environment. Um, it's not a massive industry the way it was before. As you mentioned, there were 10,000 people who uh, in West Virginia. I'd never been down in a coal mine. I'd never been in a tiny space. I'd never seen um, grown men provide for their families by breathing in the coal dust. People just having a good time, lowering the, the coal chunk the way uh, in New York they, they lower the crystal ball. 
and people just living their lives. The beauty of the country, and again, I, I told you before this interview started, it was largely going to be me sitting here praising this film. Um, but again, I just, th- th- this reminds me of why people tell stories and why people do things. It's it's not about the, f- we, we're living in a world where people deny facts, deny facts, deny facts. You can't deny emotions. And in your film, the, the beauty, the emotionality, I'm going to let you jump in here in a moment and just take it where you want, is just incredible. And I, I, my question would be, uh, that decision, did you come into it thinking facts are not going to necessarily service the story that I wanted to tell? Or did you come in and saying, look, I just, I don't know where this is going to go. I think there was a moment you talk about these two young ladies, and um, again, we'll get to them. You don't necessarily have central characters, but there are two young ladies who are almost spirits um, who guide us through this story. Was the aesthetic more when you landed on, hey, these two, they take me where I need to go. Let me, let them be my guide through this emotional journey and this visual journey. Yeah. Well, there's a lot. I appreciate all that reflection. No, you do not need to apologize. I I think, (laughs) you know, I have made so many films where I've been sort of encouraged or forced by an editorial team to put in a text card with a fact. And I just Mm. find that those moments stall the film. I wanted this film to be a cinematic experience, one that actually transported you to this place that you will likely never visit yourself, one that shows you both the beauty and the destruction and the pain. We didn't want it to just, um, you know, the, the stereotypes you talk about, the Beverly Hillbillies, I, I do believe in some ways I'm making corrective cinema about the region, yeah. um, but I'm not interested in just swapping out a negative image for a positive image. I think it's a disservice to the people. And so I really do see this film as walking the line of not being good or bad, positive or negative, but sort of speaking honestly, um, because that's the way you speak to people you love. You tell them the truth, but you tell it in a way, it's your tone that matters. And so that was the most difficult thing with this film was what not to say um, and how to say what you needed to say with the right tone so that it could fall and um, be heard by people that needed to hear it on both sides of this sort of divide that we live in. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because you you do talk about trying to move away from facts, at least in this film, um, and and move away from uh, an editorial team or other people who are saying, hey, you know, beautiful film, but, you know, cut it up, put in this card. I, trust me, I get that. Um, but your background, you come from a background of rigor. Um, you went to uh, college at University of Virginia, correct? And you studied their journalism. Journalism, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then went on to Emerson, mm-hmm. yeah. and then worked some in journalism and uh, uh, short-form documentary after uh, getting your your master's degree. Is that all correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So there's a, so you you come from a very rigorous background. You, you did a, another documentary which I have not seen. Uh, you've probably done several, but but in one interview in particular, you talk about I believe it was heroin, where you're. Um, following four individuals three, who were yeah, caught three up in women. the op- three women caught up in the opioid crisis um and very curious to see that but but come from a very rigorous background as a director now you're making this I don't, I don't want to call it a shift but this stylistic um shift uh for people who have not yet seen this film it's beautiful i mean it's absolutely beautiful talk about if you will Moving into the style space, um, was heroin as much uh, 
stylized film? Was it more of a of a of a, of a journalistic? And you talk about Frontline and those kinds of films. We did a Frontline film a couple of days ago. They're fantastic films, but they are very rigorous. Talk about making that transition if you can. Yeah. Um, from a more rigorous background, and again, I don't want to assume that there's not rigor here. Yeah. But to something that has such a an assured aesthetic approach. Yeah. Well, I do think the rigor of what journalism school and these things teach you is how to know where to go for the best moments and the best stories. And oftentimes those best stories and best moments are undermined by just doing an interview. And so my husband and I, who are um, a team together, he's my DP, we have always tried to seek out scenes, um, scenes that tell the story that words can't tell. And so that was something that we were doing with Heroin Recovery Boys, where it's, it's extremely um, observational in the sense that we don't want to tell you how to feel about the situation. We want to show you how it feels to be in this situation. And yeah. um, so that was true for those films. But what was true for King Cole that wasn't for, you know, two films about the opioid crisis was, like you said, I just don't think people whether it's bias or whether it's stereotype, it's just not the way to reach people with the story. And I, I wanted to tell um, something that felt more personal. National Geographic Documentary Films presents the provocative new film, The Mission, from Emmy-winning directors Amanda McBain and Jesse Moss. The mission tells the gripping story of John Chow, the young American missionary killed attempting first contact with the indigenous peoples of North Sentinel Island, examining how Chow's youthful thirst for adventure became a fatal obsession. Hailed by Vanity Fair as one of the best documentaries of the year, a nuanced discussion of religion, pop culture, and colonialism, says IndieWire. Compelling, says The Playlist. Riveting, says Deadline. The Mission, streaming December 8th on Disney Plus and Hulu. And so I was just genuinely excited to kind of throw everything I had done previously, all the rules I had created for myself, you know, heroin recovery boys. If we miss something in filming, we didn't ask people to repeat it. We don't stage things. We don't, you know, if we miss it, that's our bad. We just need to get better at our job. And with this film, I was able to sort of allow the creative process to just seep into me over the process of three years. And, you know, I just remember waking up and seeing an image of the two girls dancing in front of coal piles. And I was like, okay, I got to find the coal piles that are perfect for this moment because I, I wanted this, this film to have images that people hadn't seen from this region. That includes being able to see people of color in Appalachia, which is not something yeah. you get to see. Um, and that's a very intentional thing, by the way, the war on poverty that was in the 1960s that Appalachia became the white face of poverty for this country. That could have easily not been the situation. Right. And so hillbilly yeah. elegy, it's a product of that legacy. Um, and so I just found this to be a deeply kind of cathartic process. And I think the film became more about grieving and creating celebrations of new rituals. You know, the final scene is a, is a ritual recreated yeah. for the film, but it was really led by people on the ground showing us what they're already doing to grieve. Um, and so I just started thinking of this film as being a living archive of of the past and the future in some way. So how do we create these images that are in the present but feel like messages for the future and also document things that are from the past, these historical archives, these moments that are happening that feel like sort of surreal, you know? Um, 
you know, throwing cold, fake cold dust on you at a 5K run, all these types of things. Um, So, yeah, it just was a completely different creative process, but it was one that I didn't have a script. We didn't go shoot based on a script. I was writing based on images. So the film is really, the cinematography is forefront almost to the storytelling. Um, It led me to think about what I wanted to say rather than the other way around. Yeah, did not realize or did not know that was your husband. His work is extraordinary. Um, It's really beautiful. And to your point about the images, there are moments... um, for example, the one of the young ladies, uh, you contrast her in a coal mine or around coal and then do a hard cut where she's just in the wilderness and say nothing about it other than how does it feel to see a young person in one environment versus another environment. I thought that was incredibly powerful. Hearing young children who are being told the story by a, a, a raconteur who's in their class just talking about coal, it's just... It's it's beautiful. It's funny. I, I don't want to give away the punchline in, in the in the space, <laughs> but that was to me was the power of the film to see coal again, not as an industry, um, but truly as as a way of life. As I mentioned, I came from um, sort of an industrial town in in the Midwest, uh, Milwaukee, where you know beer was king for a long time. And when I was growing up in the eighties, you know beer was going away, and American Motors, which made Jeep. Um, you know, at one point went away and it got sold to Chrysler and they moved the plant out of the Milwaukee area. And just when these industries go away and things change and people don't really understand, uh, oh, it's just beer. Well, you know, beer's not that great or corporate beer's not that good. Yeah, but that was our life. And I worked at a brewery. And what you were able to do with coal was, I didn't, I, didn't, I still feel the way I, I feel about coal. I drive an electric car. You know, I hope it's cleaner for the environment. I, I recycle. I do those things. But I realized when you talk about coal, when you talk about industrial technology, when you talk about, you know, 20th century tech or things in the past, to take a hard line and not understand that you're talking about people's lives, your film, you know, I, I, I would protest against coal, but I will feel differently about people that that's their lives. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And yeah, and certainly, like, I think that's why this is an, the best time to tell the story is we're, we're closing the chapter, right? The, the chapter on this, this age, um, and this, this natural resource that has been extracted and, you know, made others rich and made other places richer, um, has left our region with very little. And, um, and now we look around and ask the question of what's next. And that's very difficult with this domination within our culture. Yeah, that was the other thing that you you really, um, in, again, in a subtle way, but in an appointed way, and I think sometimes the removal of a lot of facts allows some of the things that are in there to stand out a little bit more. And there was a uh, some archival footage and somebody way back in the day talking about, actually a couple of people were talking about, you know, all the people who own the mines don't live here. All the money is going out of here. There was a gentleman talking about, yeah, there aren't as many jobs. I can drive a truck, but it's 20 bucks a week. You know, and and even this is, you know, probably 19, mid-60s or so, yeah. 50s or so. You know, imagine trying to, to raise your family on 20 bucks a week. Again, I, I did not think, and, and this is me admitting my biases, that anyone could show me anything that would make me step back from certain things that I feel your, your film did that. The other thing about your film is, in watching it, uh, people just kept throwing things at me where it was like, oh, there is another level of artistry that you weren't even aware of. And by the way, there are amazing grace notes that I really, really love. For example, when um, you go from archival footage to your shot footage, when you just kind of, you know, close the the, the windows from, you know, 16.9 to 4.3, the, the aspect ratio, 
I just little things like that, subtleties that are beautiful. But another couple of subtleties that were were thrown at me, and this I would have, if I hadn't seen the, the footage that you shot, and frankly, not that I don't believe you, but I need to go see this guy because I almost don't believe it having seen it. <laughs> the sound in the film, uh, crickets, um, little bits of fire burning, wind, they are not natural sounds, or at least not always natural sounds. You found a breath artist, Shodake Telefero. I hope I got that name correctly. Yeah. He does these sounds himself, almost like if you can think of a beatbox artist. It's a little slower, a little more emotional. You you did a BTS behind the scenes of him shooting. It's one of the most lovely things I've ever seen. And you yeah. do it out in the wilderness. I assume your husband shot it. It's it's beautiful. But talk about this gentleman. Talk about how you found him. Talk about what he does. When he does the crickets, it's just one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. Yeah, it's incredible. Well, I, I live in Knoxville and there's a um, music festival here every year called Big Ears. And it's an experimental music festival. And I just went to one of his shows, Shodake, and he's a beatboxer um, by original tradition and has been yeah. playing in breath art and sort of redefining what it means for him. And he just did this side set from his beatboxing with with the sound of wind and thunder. And I just didn't know. I never heard those sounds come out of a human body. I couldn't believe it. It was incredible. Mm -hmm. And so I just went right up to him after his show and said, I need you to I need you to be I need you to be the voice of King Cole. I didn't know what that meant. <laughs> I had no clue. And he thought I was full of it. And I was, I got his card and he never thought he'd hear from me, but he did. And I brought him to West Virginia and we uh recorded basically his whole um breath art set in a moss forest because we wanted the you know, we had squirrels and chipmunks talking back to him when he was doing his his oh, own um sounds and it you know for me, there was a lot of research that went into this film that's not ever forefronted, but is influence, influential in what I did. And one of the things I read really early on is that, you know, if we weren't so focused on this one industry, coal, we would see all these other resources around us, which is the fact that these mm. forests that are here in Appalachia are the lungs of the East Coast, that without them, the East Coast would be an incredibly polluted, um, unbreathable type of um you know, place with all of our cities. And so I thought about how the death of one industry actually allows for a rebirth or a re-recognition of um, a rebreath of a new one. And so I thought about the lungs of the East Coast. And I thought about Shodake sort of representing that that breath um, in a culture that I think is known, you know, I think Appalachia is known for more death, destruction, poverty, lack of education, the bad things more than we are of new life. And so I felt like it was a good paradigm to explore because if we wanted to tell a new story of the region to sort of to get to your point, to, to sort of like have this new vision of the place, then we had to use new techniques. Um, it wasn't just going to be a traditional way of telling the story that we could do that. Yeah, it, it's hyper untraditional. And it's certainly Shodake's uh, contribution is, is uh, again, I've, I've seen many beatbox, but I've never seen, at least I don't recall seeing a breath artist uh, like that. And, and 
seeing him in the wilderness and doing this is, again, it's just beautiful. And your composer, uh, again, I, I hope I get this name correct, but Babak Latvapur, um, he had been a percussionist and done some really amazing films, including The Green Knight, which if anyone has not seen The Green Knight, it's a phenomenal, phenomenal film. But this was his first solo outing as a composer and, uh, again, did an absolutely phenomenal job with it. Yeah, I knew I wanted a percussive score because I had written a line early on. A lot of the writing, I'll just say, was, you know, some of it came together at the end of the film. Some of it was stuff I wrote four or five years ago. And so I was piecing together things, but the king's drum kept coming up as a motif. And I knew I wanted percussion to be part of it. Once again, when you think of Appalachia, you think of strings and bluegrass and old time music, which I love and is beautiful. But I really was trying to tell a more contemporary and in some ways timeless story. So Bobak used crazy things like metal sheets and chimes and bells and whistles um, to create this incredibly, at times, sounding like very industrial and then at other times sounding very human score. Yeah, it, it's, to me, the way that you use sound, the way that you use image, the way that you use negative space, the way that, I mean, as you said yourself, that you, whatever rules that you thought existed or that you put on yourself that you threw out, um, I can really feel this every step of the way. It's remarkable in its construction. Um, it's really, really beautiful. And this is played, I mean, I, you've, I mean, how many festivals have you been to now with this it's, film? I have, yeah, more, maybe more. And then we, we launched a theatrical in August and we've gone to close to 40, uh, maybe more theaters now, which has been incredible to see. Just independently, we've been self-distributing. Yeah, we're going to talk more about that in another episode of Doc Talk because it breaks my heart with as beautiful as this film is, as lauded as it is, you, you don't yet have distribution for this film. Um, as I said, well, we're going to talk with a representative of your film and we really want to address that because I do think, um, look, we're coming off a strike here in Hollywood. We're coming off a space where um, there's more real estate to show incredible work. And I think your film truly does a job that a lot of us and certainly politicians and people who are meant to be adults in the room aren't doing, which is saying, let's calm down for a second. Let's really see people as people and then have that discussion about what we're going to do and how we're going to change it. And honestly, I feel, I, I don't want to overstate this, but going through life so much and, you know, and look, I'm, I'm sure you get it in your own ways. I know many, many people do of um, not being understood, feeling like you're not being heard, not being seen. I don't mean to out you, but I saw in one interview where you, where you, you, you talked about what you felt was your accent from West Virginia and, and how that felt like it affected you. Uh, so we all get it to different degrees. And, and I certainly know as a person of color, I, I feel very strongly about things that I've been through. But at the same time, you do have to step away and say, look, I'm never going to compare tragedies. Um, mine is worse than yours. Yours is worse than mine. But people have been through things. And if we're not listening, how do we expect people to listen to us mm -hmm. or listen to me mm -hmm. uh, and be reactionary? Uh, I, again, I apologize because a lot of this interview is me just been talking about this film. But it's rare to see something where, um, I don't want to say it's rare, but to see something where it's, it's a very assured piece and comes from a place where you clearly know what you want to say, how you want to say it, you know, however long it took you to find your way to saying it. And moves, um, not just me, but other people that I talked to have seen this film. We had the very same reaction in terms of how it moved and, and how it reached us. Um, 
Elaine, I, I can't thank you enough um, for being here, for sharing this. Thank you. Uh, for me personally, a doc talk, I, you know, they, they have these lists at the end of the year, oh, best documentary. I always try to stay away from best, but if I do have a list, this is going to be high on it. Um, and we'd love to talk to you again with anything that you do. And in fact, at some point, I may try to go watch your, your heroin documentary and come back and talk about that as well. Um, I feel like I've dominated. No. Before we go, you're great. is there anything at all that I've absolutely missed that I should No, be no, I, about? I mean, I, I appreciate your, you know, it's, it's hard to, our industry, once you do something well, wants you to keep doing that over and over and over. And yeah. that's where you're rewarded. And I really want to credit my team and my producer, Shane Boris, at that's at the front of this, who, when I said, are we allowed to do this? When I was breaking my own rules, he told me, just do it just do it and yeah. we'll figure it out. And there's a lot of risk to taking those creative um, adventures. They're not always, they don't always have a payoff. And even though this has been a challenging year for distribution, I feel really gratified um, and that people like yourself get it and see it and feel it. Um, and so I, I just, I'm glad that I took the risk um, because it's, it's not always that we are, we see rewards from doing so from our industry. So I'm I'm glad that you took the risk. I really am because I would have hated to go through life saying, "Yeah, I'm progressive. I'm open-minded. I'm quote unquote better than than myopic individuals," and yet never really been challenged. Yeah, well, then why do you react so strongly when people just talk about this or say that or would have said, "Oh, I'm from that region." So um, I know you appreciate taking the risk as you should, um, and as your team should. Um, but for those of us who can, you know, Roger Ebert would talk about film. I say this often, um, film entertainment, it's an apparatus for delivering empathy. It's, it's an apparatus for delivering feelings. It can be the stupidest comedy in the world, but if you're laughing and having a good time, it serves a purpose. If you're crying, it serves a purpose. If you're in a communal space, it serves a purpose. What you did with this film, and again, I don't want to overplay it, but it really did um, well, I don't want people to go see it and like, oh my, okay, yeah, you know, exactly. oh, it's the greatest, no, oh my no. God, it levitates, <laughs> it cleans your body, your teeth are whiter, you're, you, know, you lose 15 pounds, but you do see folks in a completely different way. And beyond that, it's just beautiful and, and so well-constructed. Um, Elaine, thank you so much thank for, you. For, for joining us. You're a friend of the show. You can come back for any reason at all, even to just ask for change for the parking meter. You're welcome to come back. <laughs> Thank you for having me. It's been really lovely. That was Elaine Sheldon, the director of the new documentary, King Cole. And next week, we are going to be talking to Elaine's producer, Diane Becker, also the director of Bad Press, Joe Peeler, and Keith Wilson, the producer of Junam. These are three films that premiered last year at the Sundance Film Festival. And despite premiering to uh, rave reviews from critics and from the audience, these films have found themselves without distribution. And yet they have had this idea of coming together and doing what they are calling a DIY, FYC, do-it-yourself for your consideration campaign. And it's really kind of a bold and radical and cool idea um, to rather than compete against each other to really pool resources to get themselves in front of their peers, in front of voters, and most importantly, in front of audiences that really uh, are, are out there probably very hungry 
for films like this. So we're going to have a conversation with them next week. Um, my partner Matt is going to be back from IDFA, and it's going to be a very lively and I think interesting conversation about the state of the industry as well as what documentary filmmakers are doing for themselves when they find themselves without the support that a lot of the documentaries that are being produced by the larger um, streamers with deep pockets, uh, just the access that they have. That's going to be next week on Doc Talk. We will see you then. Thanks for joining us. Mm-hmm.